Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The definitive rap is proud to be the official podcast of VinNews.com. It was roughly a year and a half ago at the very early stages of COVID when I was at a Broadway show. It was about the Motown sensations, the temptations. And I was sitting in the very last row, hoping the people sitting next to me didn't have this new virus thing that was going around. Well, that ended up being the last night Broadway was open and the NBA suspended the remainder of the season. Local politicians were telling us that parades will go on and everything is fine. Then as people started to get sick, we were told that by the end of the summer, the virus would dissipate. Then the country basically shut down as there became a rush on toilet paper, masks and sanitizers. Since then, the CDC and World World Health Organizations started to get a handle on things, giving us guidelines about how to move forward. And for the most part, people complied as most Americans saw this as a we're all in this together life changing event. But it didn't take long until some TV doctors got the celebrity bug. Messaging got muddled and politicians and the media said they wouldn't trust anything that took place under a certain president, only to change course with follow the science. Today's guest is not a politician or a celebrity, but a prominent doctor, Richard Gunderman, who's, whom Bela will introduce shortly, who has authored hundreds of articles and whose latest book, Contagion, goes through the history of viruses and plagues and will educate us about everything we're doing right everything we're doing wrong, and why are some healthcare experts constantly changing their messaging, which only leads to more confusion and more mistrust from the American people. Bela? Thank you, Alan. As the germ-conscious person, and maybe even called a germaphobe by some, the term pandemic was not foreign to me. Uh, in my Eastern European ancestry, for example, uh, there were, have been people in my family who succumbed to the Spanish flu. In fact, uh, my father never knew his mother because she died of the Spanish flu. So I did spend a chunk of my life researching that pandemic, along with other pandemics in history. That it is frightening is absolutely no surprise. But I will say that for those who have not researched this topic, when COVID hit us globally, many people poo-pooed it and dismissed it as nonsense. And seemingly intelligent people said, oh, it's just like a typical flu. Not only that, but I remember in early March of 2020, there were, again, seemingly intelligent people who said, this is not a pandemic, but a pandemonium. And a short while later, the serious complications, hospitalizations, intubations and deaths began to ensue. And still there were people who refused to socially distance, wear masks and follow guidelines and protocol. What's impressive is that there are photographs of people who wore masks during the Spanish flu, and there certainly was no social media to inform people as readily as today about the dangers of a pandemic. 
And in the summer of 2020, just when things seemed to get better, a short while later, we were told that we are now in the second wave of COVID. There were vaccines that were starting to come out. There were those who refused the vaccines. They refused to be jabbed. But those who were vaccinated felt like they were breathing a breath of fresh air. I remember as soon as I got my second jab, that's what I call it, I was like, okay, party time. Now I, now I know of people who, although vaccinated, are testing positive for the Delta variant. And there are other variants in different parts of the world that are hitting the U.S. So how did this all begin? How dangerous is a pandemic, especially COVID? And what does the future look like? This and other questions will be answered by Dr. Richard Gunderman. Dr. Gunderman is a Chancellor's Professor of Radiology, Pediatrics, Medical Education, Philosophy, Liberal Arts, Philanthropy, and Medical Humanities and Health Studies at Indiana University. A distinguished medical doctor, author, and historian, he has written more than 800 articles and 15 books his most recent being Contagion, which I couldn't put down, called Contagion, Plagues, Pandemics, and Cures from the Black Death to COVID-19 and Beyond. Dr. Gunderman, welcome, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. As I intimated earlier, I've always been fascinated by the subject of pandemics. I read much throughout the years about plagues and pandemics, and your recent book, Contagion, was, oh, oh my gosh, it was a page turner. I, I just couldn't stop reading. I wouldn't even take breaks. Can you give us a brief synopsis on the history and science of contagious diseases, specifically from the perspective of how it's transmitted and how it runs its natural course on humans? Boy, that's a great question. And there's a lot of history and science there to cover. But let me say to begin with that we know for sure, based on archaeological remains, that uh, infectious diseases have bedeviled human beings since long before people were writing history. We can tell that from remains and graves. And as soon as people started writing history, we have pretty detailed accounts of pandemics that ravaged uh, villages, cities. Uh, some, some may know Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War about the battle between Athens and Sparta in ancient Greece. Um, we tend to think that battles and wars are decided by armaments and strategy, but that the outcome of that war was probably based on an epidemic that struck the Athenians and basically uh, in, uh, rendered them unable to continue the conflict. So uh, these pandemics and epidemics, uh, more broadly speaking, infectious disease, they're really interwoven with human history. I think we've tended to overrate politics and uh, warfare and probably underrate infectious disease as one of the most important factors in the course of human history. Right. Doctor, um, one of the things that you wrote about in your book, I believe it's called the cytokine storm, and you mentioned it a few times. Um, and I bring it up only because there were tests early on to see if people had antibodies in their system. And then there were shots given to kind of build up an immunity. But according to in your book, you write that the cytokine storm is when the immune system aggressively fights back and can actually cause more harm and damage. Um, and this is something that I did not hear from any of uh, any of the doctors uh, that uh, were doing interviews on any of the cable shows. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, perhaps the deadliest pandemic in human history, the so-called Spanish flu, it really didn't originate in Spain and had nothing to do with Spain, but uh, it's perhaps the worst pandemic in history. It began in 1918. Uh, it actually tended to be more lethal for young adults than uh, older people. And uh, we've long wondered why that particular influenza outbreak was so deadly. And I have to say, I don't think we know that with certainty, but it appears very likely that the culprit was a cytokine storm. Uh, a little etymology here, cyto means cell. Uh, the kind part, like kinetic energy, means to move. So cytokines stimulate cells, particularly cells in the immune system. And uh, we need a certain amount of, of, of stimulus uh, to fight off infections. But if we get too much stimulus, if we're in an overstimulated state, these same immune cells that kill bacteria and viruses can also damage our own cells. And in fact, in medicine today, uh, autoimmune diseases are part of our daily life. Just as an example, rheumatoid arthritis, there are many. But rheumatoid arthritis is an example of a disease that we think is because the immune system is attacking the body's own tissues. So the, the immune system is a great friend to every one of us, but it can go awry. It can malfunction, and the consequences can be rather dire. And it's quite probable that the cytokine storm is at least playing a role in the deaths and serious illnesses we're seeing today due to COVID-19. Uh, Dr. Gunderman, um, the greatest pandemic in history was considered the Spanish flu. You dedicated a chapter on it on, in your most recent book. And um, as I said, I, I personally always had a strong interest in reading about it. Can you tell us what, first what we thought it was? Like At first, what did people think it was as opposed to what it really turned out to be like? Yeah, it's a great question. In, in 1918, people suspected that something we call virus exists, but no one had ever seen one. It wouldn't be until the early 1930s with the invention of a device called the electron microscope that we could see viruses for the first time. But, you know, it, it was known that something like that could cause disease in animals and human beings. Uh, but nobody knew for sure that was the culprit in 1918. But it's interesting, even though they didn't know that influenza was a viral infection then, as you pointed out in your introduction, they adopted many of the same public health measures we're adopting today. You, as you say, you can find plenty of pictures of police officers, nurses, uh, pedestrians on city streets wearing masks. People were urged to stay off of streetcars and out of elevators. Uh, you know, there were no spitting laws introduced because people suspected, you know, that respiratory secretions might transmit it. So we've come a long, long way in the roughly 100 years since that 1918 pandemic. We can actually see SARS-CoV-2, uh, the virus that causes COVID-19, using an electron microscope. But funnily enough, Many of our public health measures today bear a striking resemblance to the stuff we were doing a century ago. 
But doctor, I want to ask you right now, we're seeing so many um, news stories about what's happening on airplanes, people getting kicked off. I have no idea who is guiding the different airlines, but you have, let's say a, a full flight with a few hundred people. Everyone goes on with a mask, but they all take their masks off for drinks, for food. And so doesn't that just kill the whole thing? I mean, we keep hearing about super spreaders and nothing is clear. Can you tell us, are, are we being told everything or are we just kind of going with the flow and every airline adopts their own guidelines? Um, where are they getting their messaging from? I have no uh, inside information on the airlines, but I can say it must strike a lot of people as strange to be required to wear a mask when they board an aircraft. But then, as you say, when people eat or drink, uh, they remove their masks, and we all know we don't stop breathing just because we've uh, taken our masks off. So what we're dealing with is an imperfect way uh, to try to reduce the transmission of infection. We simply can't prevent it entirely. You know, with the cloth masks or surgical masks you see people wearing every day, but it does appear that they're at least somewhat helpful in reducing transmission. So I think uh, we've made the decision. Uh, we don't want to forbid people to eat or drink on airliners. Uh, so we'll allow them to take their masks off at that time, but strongly encourage or even require them to remain masked at all other times. Dr. Gunderman, I'm going to get political here in a nice way, of course. <laughs> When COVID hit, um, there were lots of holistic and even medicinal cures claimed to either shorten the duration of the illness or make it go away entirely. The powers that be made it illegal for doctors to prescribe those cures. In fact, um, hydroxychloroquine, which is a relatively cheap drug and an old malaria medicine, which some ex experts believe helped those who contracted COVID, was forbidden to be described. You know, back in 2020, when I was holed up at home and watching interviews by doctors, because what else was I going to do? Um, I was watching those interviews, um, the doctors who, who were angry at the FDA for not allowing the drug to be described and how people got it on the black markets. Dr. Gundaman, did so many people have to die by allowing COVID to run its course? Because that's what happened. When it affected the breathing, people with low oxygen levels were admitted to the hospital and eventually intubated. They didn't know what else to do with them. And we knew that many of, of those, if not most, of those who were intubated did not survive. Did this have to happen? Well, it's, it's a tough, tough question. Uh, and you can look at it from different points of views. Let, let me share one that uh, I tend to adopt. Uh, you know, I think most of us suppose that science is kind of like an encyclopedia. You know, I just go over to the shelf, I crack open a volume, I read the article and I have the truth. But, you know, it's worth reminding ourselves that 24 months ago, nobody had ever heard of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Right. At least the way I think about science is not so much uh, a received body of truth, but kind of an approach to inquiry, to investigation, a way of trying to, you know, develop new understanding, acquire new knowledge. And we were dealing with something that we knew very little about. You know, there are some other coronaviruses that cause human disease, but uh, the viruses can differ from one another in pretty dramatic respects. I mean, the Delta virus, for example, the variant turns out to be pretty different uh, from the original uh, virus we were dealing right. with. So 
people are trying to come to at least a provisional understanding of what's happening using imperfect knowledge. And when that happens, uh, mistakes are going to be made. In fact, we've sometimes made mistakes on things we thought we knew with a high degree of certainty. And uh, I would just say, I think those of us in, in the health professions, in science, uh, epidemiology, and so forth, we should not pretend to know what we don't know. We should try to convey as well as possible, you know, concisely, but as well as possible where uncertainty exists and make people aware of that. And I got to say, there's still a great deal about this virus that I don't think we understand. I think it'll be at least years before we have a really good uh, handle on what's transpiring all around us today. And I wish there were a shortcut, you know, we could just go straight to the answer. But uh, at least we know a lot of very bright people uh, with good hearts are working on the problem and trying to help us develop a deeper and more accurate understanding. It, once we get that, we'll be even better able to prevent, I think, transmission of the disease and uh, provide effective therapy to those who get sick. Yep. But with regard to hydroxychloroquine, I'm, I'm sorry, I know you want to ask the question, I just want to get back, but with regards to the hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine, which I mentioned before, why were doctors not permitted to prescribe it? Well, you know, the United States, in the U.S., the Food and Drug Administration regulates the introduction of new pharmaceuticals, new drugs, new medical devices. And, and basically, you've got to show, A, that a new drug isn't harmful, and B, that it has some level of effectiveness. And I think uh, the idea that you would use that drug for this indication, this type of a disease, was so new, people felt we just didn't know. You know, could it be so bad health consequences? Uh, we just didn't know whether it was safe and effective. And so that that's going to be the situation anytime a very new disease arises. And lots of doctors, my colleagues, confronted with patients who are very sick or dying. I mean, deep in your heart, you want to do something. It's very difficult to stand by and feel like you're doing nothing. So people try different things. Sometimes those things turn out to be effective, sometimes not. Here's an example of something surprisingly that turned out to be effective. In some cases, turning patients prone, that is not having them positioned on their back, looking up toward the ceiling, but face down on a bed actually turns out to be of some value. Who would have ever imagined that the, the patient's posture in the bed could be effective but that's an example of something, you know, with very little risk that turned out to be a value to at least some patients. You know, doctor, also in your book, you had mentioned that there are other contributing factors like one's diet and one's health. And it brings to me um, to think that there are a lot of people. And again, I judge nobody. I took both shots, but I'm not judging anyone who's afraid or concerned. But we know that in, the, in certain minority communities, there's just mistrust of government going back to the Tuskegee experiments. And we also know that in some of the poorer neighborhoods, they don't eat as well. Um, so based on the things that you've written about, uh, these are certainly contributing factors why in minority communities, 
um, there's a higher rate of contraction, but it's not really being addressed, or at least I haven't heard it being addressed much by the, by the doctors, either because they're afraid it's politically incorrect or, you know, who knows what else. But I don't know what your thoughts are on that. You know, I think when we think about uh, health status, we often think about things like, do you have a doctor? Do you have a hospital nearby in case you get sick or injured? But in fact, two of the biggest predictors of good health and longevity turn out to be socioeconomic status and education. Now, you could speculate about why that's true, but it's simply the case. People who have more wealth and people who have higher levels of educational attainment tend to be healthier and live longer. So individuals who, as you say, are poor or perhaps haven't had the opportunity or for whatever reason didn't pursue uh, uh, education to the same degree, they do tend to be uh, sick more often and to die sooner. And that's certainly related to things like cigarette smoking, obesity, rates of diabetes. I mean, there are a number of what you might call behavioral habits or lifestyle habits that we adopt that can have a huge effect on our health. And there is just no doubt, I mean, the, the biggest risk factor for getting seriously ill and dying is probably simply age. You know, people of advanced years, over 65, over 85 are at bigger risk. But another series of risk factors is, for example, obesity, you know, uh, chronic respiratory disease that you could get from cigarette smoking. And uh, this is a very big factor. We like to think that infectious disease is just that bad virus. If we could get rid of that virus problem solved, but part of the problem is our own state of health, the function of our own immune systems. And, you know, where possible, we can do good in our communities by encouraging people to eat better, exercise more, take better care of themselves, make available opportunities for them to do so. You know, is there a grocery store with fresh produce, you know, within reasonable travel distance from where somebody lives? If we can take that sort of thing more seriously, uh, we'll not only be in better shape for COVID-19, we'll be in better shape for the next epidemic and even if we don't have another epidemic or pandemic, people will tend to lead longer, healthier lives. So it's a win-win. Dr. Gunderman, infectious disease doctors have a tough job. Not only do they diagnose infectious diseases, treat them, but they forever seek ways to eradicate them. And over the years, um, they have been. They've been uh, successful doing so to the extent that nowadays no one needs the smallpox vaccine. And I recently heard that pediatricians are not vaccinating children for polio. I didn't know this until very recently. So my question is, how can we eradicate other contagious diseases going forward? Because there's so many that we're not. So what, what exactly have, have they pinpointed in eradicating smallpox that it's no longer necessary in our polio? I can't speak to polio. I just don't know that. But I do know that the last case of smallpox was decades ago. And we think that the virus that causes it only exists in a few very well-guarded laboratories around the world. So, you know, that must be one of the shining success stories in the history of human infectious disease. That disease, in a way, no longer exists. Uh, I think a reasonable person could, could ask, well, why can't we do that with all infectious diseases? We'll find the bacteria, the viruses that cause human diseases, and we'll eradicate them, 
and we'll be done with infectious disease. The problem with that, of course, is uh, you and I have, let's say, 50 trillion cells in our bodies. That's the number 50 followed by 12 zeros. By comparison, you have about 100,000 hairs on your head. So we're talking about almost inconceivably big numbers. But we think there's many, many more bacteria and viruses in our bodies and on our bodies than there are human cells. And of course, you know, you just pick up a pinch of, of soil, you know, from your front yard or in the park, uh, the number of microorganisms in that boggles the mind. So, so the point is bacteria and viruses predated us. They go back billions of years in the earth's history. We perhaps go back a few hundred thousand. So we're never going to eradicate bacteria or viruses. In fact, we can't live without them. Viruses turn out to be a very important part of evolution because they can transmit genes between different organisms. It's quite possible none of us would be here had viruses not been ferrying genes back and forth between some of our, let's say, evolutionary ancestors. Similarly, our health depends on uh, bacteria. There's, there, there are some vitamins that are synthesized by bacteria in our bodies. We can't make them for ourselves. So we can try to attack or uh, resist bacteria or viruses that are particularly harmful for us. Smallpox is probably, again, the shining example of a success in that regard. But we're never going to eradicate bacteria or viruses, nor should we attempt to. Then, and by the way, you may have noticed antibacterial hand soaps seem to have disappeared. Why did that happen? Well, it's not because we think bacteria are good, but it turns out if you're washing your hands all day, every day with antibacterial soap, you're wiping out many of the good bacteria on your skin right, I, and yeah. basically clearing the ground for some bad actors to take up residence. So you know, our I still use mission, antibacterial. <laughs> yeah, that, so, I can't stop so using it. It's we don't want to kill bacteria entirely. We want to kind of coexist peacefully with the bacteria and viruses in our environment. That's how I put it. More kind of a not not got to get along with them, an, huh? <laughs> an ecological or something like that metaphor would be better. So, Doctor Gunderman, in your book, Contagion which is available on Amazon and other booksellers. Um, you wrote, and I don't remember the name, but it was an OBGYN from a few hundred years ago who discovered that washing your hands, and this is what you were alluding to, with soap and, and, and sanitizers uh, will save lives. And in the beginning, there was a rush on masks and sanitizers, which no longer gets mentioned. Now it's mass double masking, but no one mentions sanitizers anymore. So now my question goes to, you wrote your book in March of 2021. Between the time that you wrote your book and you, you know, wrote about COVID and today, um, what have you seen in changes? And if you were going to write a part two, what would you add to that? Well, on the subject of uh, masks and hand sanitizers, it's become very clear since the spring of 2020 that the principal way COVID-19 is transmitted is through aerosols, very, very tiny droplets, you might say, in the air we breathe. So if, if you really want to reduce its transmission, you've got to protect us from the air we breathe, or at least the virus in the air we breathe. I'm not saying washing our hands or using hand sanitizers 
is unnecessary, but it pretty clearly plays a smaller role. And that was something I wasn't uh, well equipped to say back in March of 2020, because it, it just wasn't clear at that point. And of course, there are many other lessons that have emerged in, let's say, the year and a half since then. Uh, some people may remember back in March, we had some of the senior public health authorities in the United States saying, gee, I don't think you need to wear a mask. Now, that was partly because mask supplies were short and they wanted to make sure they'd be available for doctors and nurses and other hospital workers. But, uh, you know, we, we, or at least my colleagues, very quickly changed our tune on that point when it became clear that the respiratory route of transmission is by far the most important. Dr. Gunderman, one of the greatest debates amongst people is the number of deaths from COVID that were reported. How accurate were they and are they? And also, is there a fiscal benefit for medical facilities when they diagnose COVID in patients? Boy, those are interesting questions. I'm, I'm quite sure that worldwide we're undercounting the number of cases of COVID infection and probably the number of deaths, just because in many places testing is either unavailable or very, very difficult to come by. And, uh, you know, because people with COVID often have underlying health conditions, heart disease, lung disease, it could be that sometimes people are getting sick and dying. Let's say we think it's a heart attack and maybe they were never even tested for COVID. So there are reasons to think that we're both overcounting and undercounting the number of, of, of cases of COVID and uh, the number of deaths to COVID. But I would say, as you know, last week we passed 200 uh, million cases. That's uh, the, the, the great pandemic of 19 was, yes. we think, about 500 million cases. So we're inching our way up there. Um, I, I'm quite confident that worldwide we're undercounting the number of infections. I, I'll point out just for example, I think only about 2% of the vaccinations in the world have taken place on the continent of Africa. There are very complicated reasons for that, but that's just an indicator of the huge difference in health systems, say in the United States versus the continent of Africa, I, I'm sure there's a lot of infection, illness and death taking place that just isn't being adequately counted. Dr. Gunderman, we have a little bit more than four minutes left. And there's one question I have to get in. Um, if the president called you in today and said, Dr. Gunderman, we've had the last year and a half Doctors have been on TV from the CDC, Dr. Fauci, and they're all smarter than I am, so I'm not taking shots at anybody. But if you were called in today to address America, based on what we know now, based on your experience and your know-how, what would you tell us? Because as you know, there is a lot of mistrust because there has been mixed messaging. So let's put all the mixed messaging aside. Today, you are being given the platform to address America. What would you be telling us? Well, I'm going to say something a little bit unconventional. Uh, the, the, the former U.S. Surgeon General, and again U.S. Sur Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, published a book uh, last year called Together. It's really about the health consequences of loneliness. And he was making the case before the COVID-19 pandemic that the United States is, was in the midst of an epidemic of loneliness. Uh, you think of books like Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. You know, people are 
hunched over their cell phones or, you know, their tablet computers, not out on front porches, you know, not going to block parties. We lead much more isolated lives than perhaps generations before us did. Uh, COVID-19 has put that loneliness on steroids, right? Quarantine, isolation. We all probably eye one another more suspiciously. I'm not saying we should show, throw caution to the wind, but uh, here's a thought. Most of us have lonely people in our communities. And as we move again toward more isolation, more quarantine, more social distancing, perhaps, God forbid, lockdowns again, uh, we need to be mindful of the lonely people in our midst. You know, maybe there's a, a, a single elderly person in your apartment building or in your block or somebody you know at work who's relatively isolated, each one of us can pick up a phone, you know, or use, use a digital messaging service and just let, know, let people know we're thinking about them. It turns out that when we're lonely, we can get into kind of a vicious downward spiral. You know, I feel so alone. Nobody reaches out to me. I must not be likable. I must not be a lovable person. I get more discouraged, maybe depressed. Uh, every one of us, you don't need an MD or a PhD. You don't have to be a president or a senator. Every one of us knows people who might be lonely. COVID-19 is exacerbating that loneliness. I believe that every person in the country could do something about that in our local environment and end up making a bigger difference than we might think possible. That's a fantastic answer. Bela, I know you had a follow-up. One last question. <laughs> there we are. I mean, this, this is amazing. This show is just great, but I have to get this in because I've always been wondering about that. Um, other than an underlying, or underlying conditions or other comorbidities, why do some survive COVID who have comorbidities who are actually very, very ill while other healthy people don't? What do we know about that? This is just something that's that's just been bothering me since the beginning of COVID. Let me give you the short and honest answer first. I don't know. Some people smoke cigarettes their whole adult life and ending, end up you know, 90 years old and get hit by a bus. Uh, some people get lung cancer and die. Some people recover. Uh, the short answer is we just don't know. That, that, now, that does not mean we're entirely ignorant. We just throw up our hands in you know, frustration. But there's a lot about human health and disease that we just don't know. And I like that in a way because it reminds us uh, that humility should be an important part of our posture in life. Uh, the, the world's a whole lot bigger than we are. And uh, there's some things about it that we still don't understand. And it kind of puts us, I think, in our place as uh, individual human beings and a species. Baylor. Thank you so much, Dr. Gundaman. Thank you for joining us today on The Definitive Wrap and sharing your impressive work and knowledge with us. Thank you to our audience for tuning in and to vinews.com for our show being their official podcast. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.